hope you all have uh, been blessed by what has been preached as we've labored to uh, preach through this book. Uh, I thank the Lord for being able to preach uh, this book again. I did five years ago, and I learned some new things. I've uh, grown a little bit more since then, and I've been able to preach it again with some new insight. Uh, but I pray that these messages have been a blessing to you all, and that, hey, they may be a help to someone else that you can share them with. So as we conclude our third message in this 13th chapter and the last message in this book, we're looking at verses 23 through 28. And if you look, the last words in this book, remember me, oh my God, for good. This is a general prayer that Nehemiah was asking God to keep in view of all of his work from start to finish that the Lord's grace may be with him. That's a fitting way to end this book as he sought to reform God's people after the wall was completed. Because as we've been looking throughout this book and throughout this series, Nehemiah had a sincere heart to see God's people obey and worship him rightly. And we see this coming to a conclusion as he tackle a third issue. And this one is the issue of intermarriage among the leaders and the lay people. So let's look at verses 23 through 28. And remember, this happened after Nehemiah had left and went back to Persia, you know, to serve under uh, King Artaxerxes. He went and then he came back and saw all these things happening. So this is one of the other issues that he saw when he came back and it says here beginning at verse 23 I'm reading from the ESV translation it says in those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod Ammon and Moab and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Ouch. And I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, you should not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sambalit, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. 
Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. Excuse me. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Isn't this something? So as we read here, we see that Nehemiah turned his attention to the problem of intermarriage among uh, the leaders and among laity. He saw where the Jews had married women of Ashdod. Okay, these were all uh, pagans. And Ammon, the Ammonites, and the Moabites, nations that God had told them not to have dealings with. So Israel again had ignored the covenant uh, promise commitments that they had made that we read back in chapter 10. That they should uh, uh, have a sustained Israelite identity. And because they had forsook that covenant, it led them to intermarriage with persons of other religions. So this was the problem. We're going to look at this as we go through this passage. The problem wasn't that uh, God was some type of xenophobe, you know, fear of foreigners. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that these women, these foreign women, worshiped a different God from the God of Israel. That is the big issue. That is the big idea. That is the big problem. That these women were not Jews. They did not worship the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. They did not worship the God who brought them out of Egypt. They did not worship uh, the God who was a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the covenant God of Israel. He, they did not worship the same God. That is what the problem was. And so Nehemiah was rightfully indignant. And why? We see in verse 24, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. What was the problem with this? If they spoke the language of foreigners, then they could not understand the Hebrew of the Old Testament scriptures. Because the Old Testament scriptures were written in Hebrew. Just imagine if you grew up in a Spanish-speaking household. And you saw English for the first time, or if someone was talking to you in English, you wouldn't understand the thing that they're saying. Just like you wouldn't understand a person speaking Spanish. You wouldn't be able to understand anything. So speaking the language of Ashdod, they could not speak the language of Judah. They could not speak Hebrew. And Nehemiah saw this as a problem because he knew that they would not, again, be able to uh, understand uh, the word of God. They would be losing their entire religious heritage and that is where the problem was that's what happened so just as a big idea this morning uh, with this passage our backdrop we're going to look at the dangers of intermarriage from the Old Testament and the New Testament and we will look at the grace that God provides for those who are married to unbelievers because there is grace 
for them. So our one main principle this morning is that God's standards are ignored. So these offenders that Nehemiah is addressing here, they have made a series of gross errors. Okay? And although we live in a different context than they do, and we're separated from these people by almost 2,500 years, uh, two and a half millennia, their mistake still has a relevant message for us. That, number one, we too can grieve God and ignore the warnings of Scripture, and we could disregard the serious consequences of sin. We, we can have that, that same problem, that we can grieve God. So we're going to look at these three uh, subheadings under this principle. We too can grieve God just as they did. So the first thing to know is that they grieved God. Nehemiah identified their sin as a terrible wickedness. It was a terrible wickedness because they had been unfaithful to God. We see this in verse 27. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil or this terrible wickedness and act treacherously against who? He says against our God. This intermarriage was a sin primarily against God. It was against God by marrying these foreign women. Why did they grieve God? Why did they sin grieve God? Because it violated God's standard of marriage for the Jews. Malachi was distressed in uh, Malachi 2 he talks about his distress when uh, Judah when the Israelites had broken faith and basically desecrated the sanctuary of God when they desecrated the house of God desecrate means to bring a curse upon or to destroy or to dishonor they did this by marrying the daughters of a foreign God. So we see that even the prophet Malachi was indignant by Israel doing this. God spoke to Israel through Malachi. It says here in Malachi 2, verse 14 says, Yet you say, For what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt with treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. So God was telling them that they had violated their covenant with him and have dealt treacherously with the foolish youth that they followed after God wanted Israel to be a pure and holy nation and not worship foreign gods those who had married foreign women had broken faith that's what they did they divorced their Israelite wives in order to marry these foreign women so they had broken faith 
That's what they that's what they end up doing. Even though they were bound to them in the marriage covenant, they still divorced their Israelite wives in order to marry these foreign women. Malachi told them that the Lord hates divorce. It says this here in Malachi 2 and 16, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. These Israelites were divorcing their wives in order to marry these foreign women. They were putting away their wives. So the issue was not, wasn't just about divorce, but the cause for their divorce, and that was to marry foreign women. That was the big issue. And in our context, we too can grieve God by marrying unbelievers or by divorcing a believing spouse to marry an unbelieving spouse. In a, in a more practical sense, it is more fitting before the Lord for two Christians to marry than for a believer to marry an unbeliever. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians uh, the 6th chapter. He says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with the unbeliever? The, the, those are rhetorical questions. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. There is no fellowship between a believer and an unbeliever. There is no fellowship with righteousness and lawlessness. Those two things cannot coexist. And the wider application of this that Paul is saying and what we're looking at in Nehemiah is that a person's conduct and direction of life can strongly control or influence the others. I talked about this last week. Many times people have this idea that they can take a bad person and make them good. You have some women who foolishly do that, unfortunately. Maybe you have some guys who do that. You know, you have the, the good girl who marries the bad boy. You know, we all know about that. And they say, oh, yeah, I can, you know, I can get them straight. I can, you know, no, they can't because you can't change that person's heart. Only God can. But some people in those relationships, and I'm speaking from a Christian context about Christians marrying unbelievers. You know, that person may have some good qualities about them. You know, they may be very romantic or spontaneous or they may finish all your sentences or whatever uh, else the world says that, you know, makes up a good uh, courtship. But when you are in a marriage, you have to look at a marriage like this. It's not just a piece of paper. It is a covenant. It is a picture of Christ and his church. Okay? So if you are a believer, whether you're male or female, and you're marrying an unbeliever, know this, that nine times out of ten, that unbeliever is going to have more of an influence on you than you're going to have on that unbeliever. And you're going to have conflict in your marriage because that unbelieving spouse does not have the same 
beliefs or worldview that you do. Why? Because they're unbelievers. They're going to have a different worldview. They're going to have a different outlook on how, you know, you're supposed to raise children or, or go to church and worshiping God and even giving to the church. You unbelieving spouse, why are you giving all that money to them? Why are you always, you know, getting up every Sunday morning? Why don't you stay home with me sometimes, you know, so forth and so on. It'll start influencing and causing what? Conflict in your marriage. And then conflict with your children. It happens. It has happened. It's happened to people who've been at our church uh, where that's been the case. Because it cannot work. It's not supposed to work. Although people try to make it work. And that is what Nehemiah knew when he saw these people marrying these poor women. He knew that it was going to cause problems. That the kids are going to start speaking a different language. That they were not going to be able to understand Hebrew. That these Israelites were going to start doing what? Serving these foreign gods just as Solomon did as he pointed out. So we too can grieve God by doing that. So if you're unmarried, think about that. Who you marry matters. It does. I thank God that I wasn't stupid enough <laughs> to marry an unbeliever. I can only imagine how much grief it would have caused to me. And, and you know, I, I just thank God I, I married a godly woman. I, th I think she comes from a godly family. That matters too. You know, it, it causes, you know, we don't have a lot of drama going on. You know what I mean? I have great in-laws. I love my in-laws. I mean, man, all my in-laws, uh, her, her parents and also, her brothers and sisters, you know, I, I love them to death. They're all godly people, and it, it's, it makes a world of difference. It, it does. I thank the Lord for that. Uh, everybody may not be able to say that, that I make me any better than anyone else. I'm just speaking from my own experience that it, it, it does matter. Um, it causes less conflict uh, when, when, when that's the case. And then also what you're doing, you're leaving a spiritual heritage for your, for your children when you do that, when you show them, hey, this is how it's supposed to be done. We're not going to always do it perfectly, but just that example there for them shows them how a godly marriage is supposed to look when, you know, two uh, believers are together. So secondly, uh, the offenders had ignored the plain warnings of Scripture. God had given them clear commands about mixed marriages. He told them that they were not supposed to marry these foreign women. He provided illustrations in the word about the dangers that were inherent to this. God told them, do not marry foreign women. He said, do not give your sons to their daughters and do not give uh, their daughters to the sons. Because what were they going to do? They were going to take their hearts away from them. God. You know, the, the thing, the great thing about God, God always gives warnings. Always. It's like that no trespassing sign that you'll see somewhere, right? <laughs> and what do people still want to do? Trespass out of curiosity. You know, do not enter. You know, you see the beware of dog sign on someone's fence. Like when we was kids, we used to see the beware of dog sign and start rattling the fence, you know. <laughs> Instead of a dog was going around, of course, we'll take off running if a dog 
did come out because we were afraid it would probably jump the fence. But God gives us warnings. He warned Israel many times over in Scripture. He gave them illustrations as far as what would happen if they enter into these forbidden partnerships because what it does, it compromises you. God always warns us of the dangers and consequences of sin. The first warning that he gave was to our first parents, Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden. And what did he say? All the trees of this garden, you may eat the fruit of. Except for what? One tree, the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. One tree. You eat for every other tree. Everything else is yours. And what did he warn? He said, in the day that you eat it, you shall what? You shall surely die. That was the first warning. That's the first warning. He warned Cain. He told Cain that sin is crouching at your door before he killed his brother. He warned him. Sin is crouching at your door. Do not give in to it. He gives warnings. He gives heedings for us to take heed to in Scripture. We are without excuse. And the thing is, it's a dangerous thing to see and hear God's truth communicated clearly to us. And we willfully go our own way. This is a grave sin that, that many people commit. They know that it's wrong, but you know what they say, I'm going to do it anyway. In other words, we're saying, I don't care what God says. I'm going to do it no matter what. James 4 and 17 says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you know to do good and you don't do it, you have sinned. Deuteronomy 7, this is what God says to Israel. This is the warning that he gave them. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. He says, nor shall you make marriages with them. He's speaking of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, all these other nations. God says, nor shall you make marriages with them. You should not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughters for your son. And look at why he says it in the next verse. For, for means because. What will they do? They will turn your sons away from following me. And they're not just going to turn them away. It's, it's not because this is the thing. Remember, at the heart, all of us are what? Worshippers. We worship something. There's no such thing as worshiping nothing. You don't, you don't turn from worshiping God to worshiping nothing. You turn from worshiping the one true God to worshiping all the other false gods because there's only one true God. Every other small g God is a false God. There's only one true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God says, they're going to turn your heart from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. The wisdom of God. 
God knows what is best for us. When God says, don't marry an unbeliever, there's a reason why. When Paul says, don't be unequally yoked, there's a reason why. Because you're going to invariably start serving their gods. And that's what Israel did. God warned Solomon before we got to 1 Kings 11. God warned Solomon in 1 Kings 3. Solomon loved the Lord. Solomon walked in all the statutes except he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. This was Solomon, the great wise king who built the most magnificent temple. Yet he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. The high places were the places up in the hills where the pagans worshiped their gods. And this was the problem with almost every king of Israel. They worshiped in the high places. They burned incense to those false gods. Don't you think that was a gateway for Solomon to turn away from God and to marry all these women, these foreign women that he married? It was basically a gateway. And then God warned him in uh, 1 Kings 9 and 6. God says, but if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve the other gods and worship them. So God had warned them. If he did it, he was going to cut off Israel from the land. Israel would be a proverb, a byword among all the peoples. And then this great temple that was built would be a byword. Solomon did not heed it because you read in 1 Kings 11 where Solomon married, had 700 wives and 300 concubines of all these foreign women and that his heart went after their gods and departed from serving the living God. Solomon's offense had adversely affected the history of Israel in the worst way. Okay? In the worst way. It led directly to the division of the kingdom. That's what Solomon's sin did. It led God to tear Israel apart as a judgment. God always warns us of the dangers and consequences of sin. And the tragic consequence of this one man's sin led to one of the darkest chapters in Israel's history because he married all these foreign women. And God judged Israel because of the sin of their king. That's how serious God took this sin of intermarriage. And the thing about sin, you know, leaven, you hear about uh, leaven in Scripture. Leaven represents corruption or, or sin. You know, Paul uh, told that to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 and I think 1 Corinthians 7. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven represents sin or corruption or evil. That's why they ate unleavened bread. 
But sin is like leaven. It can, it can corrupt the whole church. It can affect people more than we realize. Marrying unbelievers or violating any other God's commandments, uh, people rarely consider the consequences. But, but sin is not a selfish act. It is, it is never done in isolation. It is going to always affect someone else. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Many people think that, right? Oh, I'm not hurting anybody. If you do it alone. You have people who say, why are you so worried about um, so-called gay marriage? It's not affecting your marriage. Why are you so worried about what I do in my bedroom? Well, because it affects our society. It affects procreation. <laughs> okay, the birth rate goes down, which over the long term can lead to the end of a civilization if you're not procreating. So it does matter. And also it is a affront to our God in trying to redefine something that he has clearly defined in Scripture. So it does have consequences uh, that affect other people. We should never think, believe the lie that our sins can affect other people because they can and they do. Sometimes the sins of the parents can affect the children. Sometimes the sins of the children can affect the parents. Sometimes the sins of the teacher can affect the students and, and vice versa. Same thing at work, any, any context. Any context, it can happen. If I uh, start, although I can't do it, if you start, if I start, trying to steal people's money from their accounts at the bank, it's going to affect the whole bank. It's going to bring the whole branch under scrutiny. It's going to affect everyone, not just me. It's going to start the branch manager and work its way down, works its way up to the district manager, so on and so on. So guess what? It's, it's going to affect other people. So we must look at sin the same way, and that's what Nehemiah was concerned about that they were not considering the consequences of what they were doing. Which leads to our third point on this principle. We can disregard the serious consequences of sin. These people were basically indifferent. They didn't care about the consequences of their sin. In verse 24, he asked, no, and half of their children, rather, spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people now I talked about this earlier this is what Raymond Brown said about we have to look culturally at how this was uh, effective in them speaking another language so we're putting ourselves into this context this is what he says <coughs> He says the mother's role in the family is crucial. Normally she is the one who spends the most time with her children. Remember we're talking about foreign women here. Okay. And naturally they're going to uh, take on her principles, copy her lifestyle, and certainly in this case these 5th century children follow her faith. Inevitably 
they will speak her language. And so the likelihood of their learning Hebrew was remote. Yet Hebrew was the language in which their scriptures were written. Hey, they didn't have Google Translate back then, okay? <laughs> it wasn't that easy. Anyway, he continues. And when they went to the temple, that was the language spoken by the priests and Levites. So everything was in Hebrew, but yet they are these foreign women speaking different languages, teaching their children. He says, Nehemiah discovered that half of these children in Judah and Jerusalem were fluent in their mother's tongue, but had no Hebrew at all. When God's word was read, they could not understand his message. Moreover, there's little doubt that their mothers maintaining their allegiance to the gods of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab encouraged them to pray to such gods and taught them about these native religions. So there's no doubt that these mothers, these foreign women, had great influence on their children because they did not convert to Judaism. So they were teaching the children their language, the worship of their gods. And so when the children went to the temple, they didn't understand what the priest was preaching because they didn't understand Hebrew. Why? Because they were learning language of the foreigners. That's a grave consequence for these children. I hope you see how grave it is and why Nehemiah was so upset that half of these children could not understand their own language. So the language of sin wins and the language of God loses. When we enter unholy relationships and other sinful partnerships without considering the consequences. We must know that we will be adversely influenced by unholy partnerships and unholy marriages. We cannot be deceived into thinking otherwise. Raymond Brown continues. He, he's, he asked, answers the question, why was Nehemiah so indignant? Why was he so angry that he pulled out their hair? That was a sign of, of, of disgust. Just imagine if we went around pulling out men's hair and beards. I don't think any of us walk around with hair, right? <laughs> we always stay clean shaven. But that was, a sign of, that was a sign of anger. Sometimes men would pull out their own beards as a sign of, of anger. But in this case, he was pulling out the beards of those, of those men because that was the seriousness of what they were doing. He was that serious about it. So Raymond, Raymond Brown explains why he was so indignant. He says, if more and more Israelites ignored the teaching of God's word about marriage to an unbelieving partner, then within a relatively short period of time, Israel's distinctive message would be compromised and weakened to the point of ultimate extinction. The future of Israel's faith demanded their spiritual loyalty and integrity. Whenever we sin, he continues, we always involve other people in one way or another. I just made that point. We not only grieve God and damage ourselves, we affect others also. The incidence of mixed marriage was widespread and not confined to one particular locality or class of people. 
It had even invaded the life of priestly families where the spiritual responsibilities were normally passed on from father to son. One of the high priest's grandsons had married the daughter of Sambalat in verse 28, another of Israel's bitter opponents. And we see this in verse 28 where he says, and one of the sons of uh, Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat the Horonite. And Sambalat was one of the enemies. But one of Eliashib, the high priest's son, was married, was his son-in-law, married one of his daughters. Like the audacity of him to do that. So they ignored the consequences of this sin. It was very grave, and that's why Nehemiah was so indignant about it. And that's why we have to be careful about that also. Because as I said, I think I said in Bible study this past Wednesday or last week, once you compromise on one thing, you might as well go whole hog. Once you compromise. You compromise on marriage, you're going to compromise on everything else. It's going to affect other areas of your life if you do that. And that's what Nehemiah knew. If they allowed these marriages to go on, then in a generation or two, there was going to be no Israel. Why? Because they would have been so intermingled with these foreigners, these foreign wives and their children, worshiping these other gods. So he was thinking long-term. What are the long-term consequences of this? And just as a side note, how many people think about the long-term consequences of things? How is this going to affect me down the road? How is this going to affect my children down the road? How is this going to affect my marriage down the road? We're too busy living in the now, as they say, living in the present, being present. <coughs> but with sin, we have to think about what? The consequences, long-term. It would bring so less grief. May I want to switch right quick to look at people who may be in unequally yoked marriages. The grace that God provides to these marriages. We have two instances of scripture here. Uh, Paul deals with it in 1 Corinthians 7 and then Peter deals with it in 1 Peter 3. We have uh, particularly wives because they're the weaker vessel involved in uh, unbelieving uh, when they have unbelieving husbands that's what Peter deals with specifically Peter deals with uh, Christian women who are married to unbelievers and the grace that comes with that and then Paul deals with it uh, also in 1 Corinthians uh, 7 so we're just going to look at those two scriptures uh, in brief to see the grace that God gives but this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 7 <clears throat> begin at verse 10. He says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she departs, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. 
But you see the grace there? If a person is married to an unbeliever and if they wouldn't stay in that marriage, you know, just let them stay. Don't try to divorce them. And why does he say? He says in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. Okay? So, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So what is Paul saying there? In an ideal situation, if you have a believing spouse married to an unbelieving spouse, if that unbelieving spouse agrees to stay in that marriage, that's fine. Because that believing spouse is there for the unbelieving spouse's benefit. That's why he says the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Not that they save them, but it's a sense of a, uh, of, of a, of a blessing that that unbelieving spouse is there. I mean, that the believing spouse is there for the unbelieving spouse. It's a source of blessing for them. But if they decide to leave, let them leave. But if they agree to stay, let them stay. So that is the grace that, that, that God gives when a uh, believer is married to an unbeliever, whether it's a, a husband or a wife. Okay, he gives that grace to them. And then First Peter gives an example, particularly of uh, uh, women, uh, believing wives who have unbelieving husbands. And this is a very good passage. I had to deal with this one time with one of our uh, former church members who was married uh, to an uh, unbeliever and, and, uh, and still is. And, and this is the scripture that I, I counsel her uh, with. First uh, Peter, and this is what uh, you know. Peter says, and this is under context of of suffering. By the way, and this is a good source of encouragement. He says, "Let wives, uh, likewise wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be warned without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair." And the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And this is how the holy women uh, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is are frightening so although husbands ought to be uh, leaders in their homes and wives are subject to their husbands uh, there are cases where a wife does have an unbelieving husband who is disobedient to the word but she shouldn't try to pressure him into uh, converting but instead her godly conduct would testify uh, without a word to the truth of the gospel and that is uh, how Peter instructs uh, believing wives with unbelieving husbands uh, that perhaps the husband may be worn over to Christ by her godly character 
and you know we can say that around to husbands also so this is also the grace that that God provides in those types of marriages again it is not an ideal way to be married because it does cause more grief now it may happen where two people are unbelievers and then one gets saved you have one that becomes the Christ and then the other one doesn't this is a great scripture that can apply to that context but I would always caution people don't go into a marriage when you uh, don't even date an unbeliever first of all don't just start there and don't even go farther if that person is an unbeliever because it's just going to cause a lot of grief a lot of heartache uh, once you are uh, covenantly uh, together in in marriage it, it just it'll just cause a lot of grief so that is um, just some encouragement there um, as we look at unequally yoked and look at the context of our uh, passages and the dangers of being unequally yoked and having a uh, mixed faith marriage that it does not work particularly for the Christians because as I always say we're always the ones who are called to compromise amen uh, just as applications um, as we trust in the work of Christ may we grieve not the Holy Spirit through our disobedience to uh, to scripture and to God's commands as Israel did uh, Nehemiah left and came back and saw that they had fallen back from the covenant promises that they that they made to God uh, may we seek with the Holy Spirit's help not to grieve uh, the spirit of God through our disobedience because the spirit always warns us Okay, he is like our governor, not governor like the uh, KIV, but a governor is, is, is something that basically puts restraints on something like your engine may have a governor uh, on it where your car can only go so fast. And when it hits that certain red line, then the engine uh, shuts off or doesn't go any, any faster or farther. Uh, but the Holy Spirit does that. He, he leads us and he, he teaches us. He applies God's truth to our hearts. May we not ignore the Holy Spirit and go headlong into sin as uh, Israel did. May we heed the warnings of Scripture to our, uh, through our careful diligence. Take heed to the Word of God. We all know that God's way is always the right way. God's way causes the least amount of headaches. Can we all agree with that? It's true. Doing it God's way. I tell our boys that all the time. Do everything God's way. Work God's way. Date God's way. Serve God's way. Love God's way. It always, always leads to human flourishing. And also, I talked about this earlier, regard the consequences of sin. so that we won't put our lives or the lives of others in spiritual danger. We don't, we don't sit and think about the consequences of our sins. We just do it. Let us think about the consequences of, of sin. And remember, sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't just affect us. Our sins don't just affect us. It affects other people around us. If we're married, it affects our spouse. If we have children, our sins affect our children. 
our friendships, our relationships. Consequences. Just ask yourself this question. What would happen if I do this stupid thing? <laughs> you know, what's the, what's the popular saying? Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. We have to consider the consequences of our sins. Think about them. Israel didn't do that. Solomon didn't do that. As wise as he was, he failed because he did, he ignored the heedings of God. He did not consider what the consequences of his sin of marrying all those foreign women would, would, would cause. It ultimately caused the breakup of the kingdom. Not while he was alive, but afterwards. Where Israel was split into two kingdoms. And that was one of the consequences of it. So let us regard those consequences. Amen. Let us pray. Father, first, thank you for blessing us to make it through this book. We thank you for the truths that you have shown us. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask you to help us to not grieve the Holy Spirit, but to heed the warnings of Scripture and to regard the consequences of our sins. Father, your grace is wide and it is deep. Lord, you don't condemn us as believers because of our sins. And we thank you for that grace. But Lord, our sins do have consequences. So Father, help us to do healthy self-examination. Help us to, by your Spirit's help, heed your word and your commandments. Continue, Lord, to conform us to uh, the image of Christ. I pray for uh, those of us in here who are not married and desire to be married, that they consider who they marry, who, they, who they're dating. Make sure that they're not unequally yoked because it will cause grave harm to them and perhaps to their children, to their families, to their relationships. And Lord, those of us who are in marriages like that, Lord, that you, you, you show us, give us grace to endure, to show gospel love uh, despite that union. And Lord, as we uh, get ready to partake in uh, this meal, this time of fellowship, may we enjoy this sweet time as it is a picture, a small foretaste of the great supper that we will have in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus Christ. I thank for those who prepare this food and let us all enjoy it to your glory and exercise good stewardship over it. In Christ's name I pray, amen.